great. Let's turn together to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So a fairly large passage this morning. And we'll finish chapter 2. And next week be in chapter 3. Colossians 2, 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a public show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Amen. Let's just pray before we get started. One more time. Father, we have come, met together in your name, and where two or more are gathered in your name, you promise to be in our midst. God, we open up your word this morning, and Lord, we look to you to hear from you. I pray that you'd open up our understanding, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Take our mind off of the things of the earth and set our mind on the things above, and the amazing mystery of the gospel. And God, as we prayed for Jordan, I just pray for all of us this morning, that you would cause us to see the sinfulness of our sin and the amazing love that you have towards us as demonstrated in the cross. Just fill us, Lord, with that vision this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. So we've been going through Colossians, and just a brief summary of the book again. Paul, the apostle, is writing this letter with Timothy, our brother, and they're writing to the Colossian church, the church that's at Colossae. And Paul has actually never been there personally because a man named Epaphras actually brought the gospel to that city. He was a local Colossian, kind of like you'd be a, a Loganite, is it? So imagine if there was no apostle that came to Logan, but somebody from Logan went out, discovered the gospel, came back, shared it with uh, the city. And so Epaphras was this man, as we've learned. And now there's trouble at Colossae. Paul is writing from Rome, he's in prison, and there's trouble at Colossae because everywhere the gospel went, 
so also went these guys called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were always following in the trail of the gospel and always trying to subvert the true message of what the gospel was. And they succeeded in many places. And so actually much of our New Testament, much of the letters in the New Testament, we need to understand this, um, is actually a response to the Judaizers, this conflict, this battle going on between the true gospel and a false gospel, okay? So the true gospel on the one hand and a false gospel that is passing off as Christian, that is what much of the New Testament is all about. And so we need to know that because not all that pa says they're Christian is Christian. I mean, the, the issue is just as relevant today as it's ever been. And sometimes we get fooled because um, people will say, well, well, what do you mean they're not Christian? Or what do you mean I'm not a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But that's not it. That's not the issue. It's bigger than just saying you believe in Jesus. It's, just, it's bigger than even believing Jesus is the Messiah. It's bigger than believing Jesus rose from the dead. All those things are indispensable. You have to believe those things. But it's bigger than that. Someone can believe all those things about Jesus and still not be a Christian because they don't put their confidence in Christ alone. They don't see that Christ and what he did on the cross is sufficient for you. And so these Judaizers, they went around as they were here in Colossae, as we're going to read more and see more today. These Judaizers went around not claiming Jesus wasn't the Messiah, not denying Christ flatly, not denying he rose from the dead, but denying his sufficiency and putting on obligations upon the Christians and saying, it's not enough that you believe in him. You also have to do this and this and this. And throughout history, this and this and this takes on different forms and shapes. And, um, it just it looks different age to age, but it's all essentially the exact same issue. It's a denial of Christ's sufficiency. And so Paul writes to them for this reason. And he stands with Epaphras. He says, he is our beloved brother. He is to you a faithful minister of the gospel. Meaning Epaphras delivered to you the gospel and you trust in what he says because they were being tempted with these Judaizers to think Epaphras maybe got the gospel wrong. I mean, he's a local yokel. So maybe he got it wrong. And Paul's saying, no, he didn't get it wrong. But Paul moves on from Epaphras and brings out his own apostolic credentials. And he says, the gospel you heard from Epaphras is actually my gospel because he heard it from me. And my gospel, I got it from God. So to reject Epaphras is to reject me, not just Epaphras, and it's also to reject God and the gospel that God has delivered, the message from God. So it's extremely important. Paul talks about Christ and his sufficiency. He talks about who Christ is, that he is the creator of the world and the one who holds all things together, and he's the head of the church, and that by his blood and his blood alone, we are reconciled to God. By his blood and his blood alone has, has done it all. He talks about the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ. How it's done everything you need for reconciliation in verse 22 of chapter 1. Uh, because of his death, you are now holy and blameless in God's sight. Because of his death, you are blameless. You don't need anything more than the death of Christ to be blameless in the sight of God. And all we are exhorted to do here in this letter and the marching orders that Paul gives uh, as we saw in chapter 2, is simply to stand fast in faith against the attack of the Judaizers, which doesn't seem like an attack. It seems like it's a religious, pious supplement 
But Paul's calling it for what it is. It's an attack. He used military words. He says, these are your marching orders. Stand fast. And don't be moved away from this hope. Because if you're moved away from this hope, my brothers and my sisters, then you are moved away to the uh, loss of your own soul. You're saved if you continue in the faith, believing in Jesus Christ as your sufficiency. But if you're moved away from that, then you do it to the peril of your own soul. So this is a really important stuff, perfectly relevant to today. And we all need to take heed to what is being said. And then last week, we were looking at what Paul meant when he said, you are complete in Christ. According to verse 10, you are complete in Christ. And Paul doesn't just say you're complete. He goes into that in detail. And one of the things the Judaizers were saying that, that the Christians needed to do was to be circumcised. This is one of the things that they said you had to do. Faith wasn't enough. So they would have come along here and they would have said, Casey, you need to be circumcised. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not going to heaven. And... Paul says, you're complete in Christ. If you believe in him, in God's sight, you are circumcised. What they claim that you need to have, you already have. And you don't need anything more. In fact, they're the ones who are uncircumcised in God's sight, as we looked at last week. God considers us to be circumcised or uncircumcised based upon our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we ended last week in verse 13. Paul just said this, God had forgiven you of all trespasses. And now this, this morning, we're going to look at that in more detail. Actually, verse 14, let me just draw our attention there, is probably in the Bible one of the most detailed explanations of what forgiveness of sins is all about, how it works and what it's all about. Because sometimes the Bible just makes these statements, you're forgiven, and it doesn't really explain the nuts and bolts of that. Well, verse 14 explains the nuts and bolts of our forgiveness and how we're forgiven. And he just said you're forgiven of all trespasses, all of them, past, present, and future. Otherwise, it wouldn't be all. You're forgiven of all trespasses. So this morning, let's look and see the details of what it means to be forgiven and what it means for us as Christians. So verse 14, he writes, having forgiven you of all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, a better order in the Greek would be this. Blotting out the handwriting that was against us by ordinances. Okay, just a slightly different order there. He blot out the handwriting that was against us by ordinances. So there's two terms in this verse that we need to open up and we need to understand, because everything else is pretty straightforward. But the two terms is this, are these, the handwriting and the ordinances. What do these terms mean? Blotting out, we can understand that it was against us and contrary to us, taking it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, we can understand that. But what is handwriting and what is ordinances? All right, handwriting. This is actually a, a technical term in the Greek that was used in Paul's day. And Greeks used it, and Jews used it. And what it was was a legal document that was used in his day that was to indicate somebody's debt, a certificate of debt 
So it was a piece of paper, and it was legal document, so it was considered an official thing, and it indicated your debt, the debt that you owed. It was common, it was used by everybody, and it was also religious. This technical term was used by Jews even. I think they probably just incorporated it from their culture. They actually used it, that term, to talk about their relationship with God. And now, as Jews, as people, we have a debt to God as well. So this idea of a debt, this word debt, was actually used commonly by the religious Jew. Jesus himself used it. Can you remember in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts. That's actually a good translation. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Right? Everybody says that? Very common usage, common idea when thinking about sin was this idea of debt. And what is a debt exactly? A debt is something that you owe, right? A debt is something that you owe. But it can be used in a positive sense or in a negative sense because we could say that, well, we all owe worship to God, right? Because he created us. We all owe obedience to him. That's sort of a positive thing. There's no sin involved at that point. It's just saying we owe it to God to worship him. The law commands us to obey. But when the Jews would use the word debt, it wasn't in a positive sense. It was in a negative sense. It had to do with your sin and what you owed to God because you violated his law. That was the sense. So not just this general, I owe God obedience, but because I sinned, now I have debt. I owe God what the law demands of me, which is punishment, which is punishment. So it's a negative word. I heard once that in German, the word debt and guilt are the same. Both negative things. Um, Webster's Dictionary defines debt in several different ways, some positive and some negative. The negative way he defines it really captures this. A debt is that which renders, that which is liable to punishment. That which renders you liable to punishment. So if you have a debt in God's sight, then you're liable to be punished by God. So it's a way of talking about sin and the mandatory consequences or punishments of sin. John Gill, he wrote this about the Jewish understanding of debt. He was one who studied uh, the rabbinical writings in depth. This is what he says. In the Jews' mind, this was a debt book, this word, the handwriting, which showed and testified the debts of men, that is, their sins, how many they are guilty of, and what punishment is due unto them. Now, Brad gave me this this morning. <laughs> well, actually, the police gave it to me a couple days ago. <laughs> Parking ticket. I parked outside of the bookstore, and I received a certificate of debt. I received a handwriting, a legal document, okay? This is exactly what we're talking about. This is a negative thing, <laughs> right? This shows me exactly what I did and what I owe. And in a real sense, when we sin against God, we receive in heaven one of these things, a certificate of debt, a violation, and it tells us what we did and what now we owe. And what do we owe? We don't owe $25. We owe death, punishment, wrath, indignation from God. So we even use this today, okay? 
So this is the handwriting that Paul's talking about right here. The handwriting that was against us. This is not for me, this is against me, right? This isn't, this is not saying, I don't read this, it says, you just won $25. <laughs> it's not Monopoly. This is against me, contrary to me. Paul emphasizes the fact that it's against us twice here. He says it was against us and contrary to us. And the word contrary means it's actually hostile. It's not just a passive thing. Like this piece of paper doesn't really have any emotion. It is against me. But there's a hostility in view here in verse 14. The law is actively pursuing us to punish us. Now, what does the word ordinances mean? This is kind of a, a, a tricky word because the word ordinance, that's the way it was translated, and it can kind of be confusing. But in the Greek, the word is dogma. And it's where we get our word dogma. And we've seen it before in Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, flip over there to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. You'll see the word ordinances. It's the exact same word dogma in the Greek. So flip there. Keep your finger in Colossians, though, because we're going to go back in just a second. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Talks about dogma. It says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in dogma. Now notice it says commandments in dogma, meaning this dogma isn't the commandments itself. It's not just talking about the actual laws of God. It's talking about the character of the law. The character of the commandments. Not the commandments themselves, but its character as dogmatic. Dogma means a settled opinion or a principle. And when someone is called dogmatic, they speak very authoritatively. They speak on principle. They speak without any flexibility whatsoever. This is exactly how it is. I'm not flexible. This is how it is. I'm speaking of a settled opinion, a principle, and I'm not going to budge. And I'm very authoritative about it. It's dogmatic. It's the same idea in the Greek. And it's the character of the law that's in view. Not just the specific commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the commandments, but its character is dogmatic authoritative, you must do it on principle. And if you break the commandments, you must be punished. The law of God is dogmatic. There's a lot of people in this world that don't think so. They think the law of God is just a bunch of good advice for us to follow, and there's no dogmatism to it at all, right? Here's God's commandments, but they're not really commandments. Just kind of do your best and don't worry about it. You know, as long as you do your best, you don't have to keep them all. God will let you in. Do the best that you can do. That's not the law. The law is dogmatic. This is the commandment. Do it, and there's no flexibility. If you, get, if you don't do it, punishment, and there's no flexibility whatsoever. No leniency whatsoever. The Greek word tells us the character of God's law. So back in Colossians, the sense here is this handwriting is against us dogmatically. There's no flexibility now, there might be some flexibility sometimes in our human governments, right? But, it, but sometimes there's not. Often there's not. There's no flexibility here. I have to pay this, and if I don't, I get a worse punishment, right? 
So the sense here is the handwriting is against us dogmatically. You know that there's a real debt. This is, we're talking about something very real. You and I, because of our sins, when we sin against God, because we're, we're so kind of dull up here, we don't really feel it or sense it much. But there is a real debt, a real parking ticket in heaven that you have incurred that is offensive to God. And if only we could see into the heavenlies, like Elijah's servant or Elisha's servant. Remember when Elisha opened his eyes, saw the angels? They were there protecting them. But I think we would be overwhelmed to see if God opened our eyes to see the angels of death with their swords drawn, like about to kill Balaam everywhere, all around us, with a parking ticket in their hand and their sword drawn, and they have every right to cut you down except God's just saying, hold on. We would be shocked to see that, the reality of it. It's not just ideas, it's not just theories, it's real. You really are guilty before you become a Christian. You really are in danger. There's a warrant out for you, and you could die at any moment. And it's real. And hell is real. And forgiveness is real. Because Paul doesn't just talk about the debt the handwriting, but how it was removed. Because he just said you're forgiven of all your trespasses and here's how it was removed. It was blotted out because Christ took it out of the way. How did he do that? It tells us here. He didn't just go to the Father and said, Father, can, can you just let it pass? And he's like, well, okay, son. He didn't do that. Because the Father himself sent the Son because he loved the world and he loved those who had incurred debt against him. The Father himself sent the Son to die on the cross for their sins. That's the essence of the gospel. That's why the gospel can even be spoken. That's why there is a gospel because the Son of God nailed our handwriting, our certificate of debt to the cross. He paid for it. That's the idea. The punishment the debt, what we owed to God was death. And Jesus Christ paid it in full at the cross. He paid it. It's like Jesus takes this parking ticket from me, goes down to the police station or wherever he's supposed to pay it and gives the money. And it's done. On the cross he did that. Because death was the punishment for sin. He nailed it to his cross and took it out of the way. And all the Greek scholars on this passage, they inform us that there's a change of tense when it says took it out of the way, there's a change of tense to the perfect, which means permanently and forever took it out of the way in the Greek, which we kind of don't see in the English. But when he takes it out of the way, he takes it out of the way forever. It never is ever going to come back again because he nailed it to the cross. Isn't that wonderful? That's a real thing Jesus did for you. He really paid your debt by dying for you on the cross. It's so explicit where it happened and how it happened. And so we are free. The perfect tense, Robertson says, emphasizes the permanence of the removal of the bond which has been paid and canceled and cannot be presented again. Jesus Christ said, it is finished. 
and it is. Do you believe that it is finished? Do you believe that you have no debt before God? As a Christian, if you're believing on Jesus Christ, you have zero debt before God. None. No debt. Debt-free. Our dear brother Benson from Kenya, he spoke on that, being totally debt-free. And shouldn't we rejoice and revel and enjoy the freedom that Christ has brought to us? I don't know how many of you have ever experienced being in debt, but it feels good when it's all gone, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's just a mortgage. That's just money. No one's going to kill you. God was going to send you to hell. God paid your debt by dying on the cross for your sins. And you're free, totally free, permanently and forever, with no more debt ever, ever to come back again. Even when you sin, it's all been paid. Isn't that glorious and wonderful? This should cause us to great rejoicing, brothers and sisters, great rejoicing. And we shouldn't live like the world does because the world doesn't rejoice in this. The world will rejoice in many things, but they don't rejoice in this. And when their many things don't happen, they don't have a reason to rejoice. But we, like we sung in that song, in all times can triumph through all things because of the love of Christ who paid our full debt. And in verse 15, it says that when Christ did this, because he did this, or in the very act of doing this and dying for our sins, he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He spoiled principalities and powers. The word there is he divested them of all their power. He stripped them of all their power. These were the principalities and powers that we've talked about before. These, I believe, are the angels, the rebellious angels. This has to do with the war in heaven because he's triumphing over them. Do you realize there's a real war in heaven the Bible talks about? There's angels that don't love God and that have rebelled against God. But they use the law and they use God's commandments against us as sinners to bring us down, to destroy God's handiwork and those whom God loves. And Christ triumphs over them, spoiling them of all their power, by the death on the cross. Meaning they used the law against us, they used our sins against us, they pulled out the parking tickets and said, I'm going after them. Jesus Christ took it all out of the way and took all their power away. Now he is above them all. He has the final say. He can save anyone who comes to him. Do you know that you can be saved? Any single person can be saved by coming to Jesus and be saved from these principalities and powers that would come against you. He spoiled them and he made a triumph over them and I believe that was in heaven. Because I don't know when I noticed that, you know, did anyone notice that happen? When he made a public spectacle of them. I think that was in heaven. I think there's more that meets the eye in our world. The Bible talks about the church manifesting God's wisdom to angels. And there's an angelic world. And somehow in heaven, when God did this through Christ, all of heaven was like, whoa. Whoa. And God triumphed over his enemies openly in this amazing act that no one would have expected. That's why I love all the hymns about the angels not understanding the gospel. Just like blows them away. Should blow us away too. So that is our redemption. And what Christ has done for us. Now the next part here, there's two things I'd like to look at. There's a therefore and a wherefore. 
So this is the therefore and the wherefore of redemption. Now we're going to come out of heaven and we're going to step back into Colossae. We're going to see how this redemption, this forgiveness that we've received, how it now applies to the Christian and to these Judaizers who are now trying to take them away from the gospel. Therefore, here's the therefore. What is the result of this? What does this mean practically for your life? Therefore, let no one judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or respect of the new moon or the Sabbath day. So here we see what the Judaizers were about. The Judaizers were coming along and they were trying to put people back under the subjection to the law. And they were saying, you need to be circumcised, number one, as we saw in Galatians. You need to keep the feasts. You need to be kosher. These are things in the law, right? It's not exhaustive of the law. But what we see here is that the Judaizers probably didn't come along saying that you had to keep all the law in all its moral requirements. What they were probably saying was, you need to just be circumcised and keep the, the ceremonial commands, the feasts, the kosher laws, and things like that. You need to still do those things. They didn't have a robust vision of what the law was in all its moral nature. And this is what Paul had. This is Paul seeing through these things. Many people don't have a robust vision like Paul either. And they'll say, yeah, the whole issue is just ceremonial. That's all. See, the Judaizers are talking about ceremonial. Paul's saying you don't need to keep the ceremonial. It's all ceremonial, but you still got to keep the moral because they don't have a robust vision of what that is either. But Paul's seeing through it. He's seeing the, the law as a complete whole. And he's saying if you subject yourselves to, these, to anything, then you subject yourselves to everything. So he says in Galatians 5 verse 3, I testify to everyone, meaning they didn't know this. He had to inform them. If you are circumcised, then you're a debtor to keep the whole law. The Judaizers weren't telling you that. You're a debtor to keep the whole law. You have to do everything if you subject yourselves to one thing. That's why it's so dangerous to play around with the law of God and to say that you have to do something, even if you think it's only ceremonial and not moral. You fool yourself. If you have to do anything, you have to do everything, and it destroys grace. So Paul here is not just arguing about ceremonialism, but he's seeing through it. Let no one judge you then in anything. And it happens to be here. The Judaizers were looking down on people and judging, oh, you're not in, you're, you're worse than us, you're not a Christian because you don't, you don't, you eat this and you eat that. Don't let anyone judge you like that. Oh, you're not a Christian because you don't observe this day or whatever else it may be. We're no longer to be judged anymore because our relation to God is no longer dependent upon the law in any way, shape, or form, ceremonial or moral. And let no one judge you anymore regarding those things. You're totally free now from all judgment. You're totally free from all moral obligation, ceremonial obligation. You should feel that freedom. Christianity is about being free. It's about liberation. And don't let anybody come and put you under bondage to rules. You're free. The only thing that you need to do is believe and nothing more. Paul says in verse 17, which is very much like the book of Hebrews. There's a, there's a great uh, parallel between the book of Hebrews and Colossians here. Paul says, all these things that they're saying are simply shadows of the things to come. The body is Christ. I mean, the body that casts the shadow. 
is Christ. If there is a shadow, it's because there is a body. And Christ is now revealed to us. He's the substance. You don't need the shadow anymore. So they're just, they're not seeing what these things are all about. All those ceremonial things just simply pointed towards Jesus. If you've got Jesus, then you've got everything the Judaizers are saying you don't have. They're still playing around with shadows. Everything that the most sincere, earnest, pious Judaizer is striving for, you immediately possess by faith in Jesus Christ. Everything that you could gain, my friends, everything that you could gain by being really religious in your mind, you're thinking, well, if I was only this and if I was only that, then I'd have all these things. You have it all in Jesus. There's nothing you need to strive for because you've got it all. Maybe you're not enjoying it, but you've got it all. I think many of us don't enjoy it because we don't believe we have it. But everything that they say you need, you have. And you have it in body, in substance, and not merely in shadow. So let no one beguile you of your reward. I think there he's saying the reward you have. Don't, you know, enjoy it. Let no one, let no one take away your enjoyment of the things that you have in Christ Jesus. You've got it all. You're forgiven. Don't let anyone beguile you of that. You're in God's favor. You're totally righteous, totally forgiven. All things are working together for good. You've got a, a hope and a future. Don't let anyone beguile you of that. Enjoy it to the full. And see what these Judaizers were also saying in verse 18. They were, it, it looked good because it was a voluntary humility, meaning it was a, a self-imposed humility. There was an emphasis on your willingness to submit yourselves to a worship of angels. And as I've mentioned before, this doesn't mean that they are worshiping angels as God because the Jews believed certainly that there was only one God. But it was this. It was very common in the first century for people to, to have this false humility and say, oh, I'm not good enough to go directly to God. I'm not good enough to go. I'm too sinful to go to God. I'm going to be humble and go through angels. Oh, excuse me, angel Michael. Can you please go beseech God for me? I'm, too, I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy enough to go before the throne of grace. And so this is the false piety of the Judaism. And it would have sound, sounded so pious. It would have sounded so, so great. And many people do it today through saints and angels because they don't know what they have in Christ. And like as this parallels Hebrews, here's what the Bible tells us to do. Come boldly before the throne of grace. You don't need to go through angels. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And you can go right to the Father in the name of Jesus. So come boldly before the throne of grace. And this is the contrast with the message of the Judaizers. They'll take away your freedom. They'll take away your access. They'll take away your salvation. And they'll do it all in the name of Christianity. Come boldly before the throne of grace. And don't let anyone beguile you of your reward. I had the thought the other day, and, and can it be that I should gain? In the last verse, it says, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And I used to always sing that as a future thing, like when I finally do approach the throne bodily, and of course it would apply to that. 
But I think that there's a present application to that. Bold, I can now approach the eternal throne and even right now claim the crown through Christ my own. Even right now claim all the blessings that I, I'll, I will have tangibly in the future because I am a child of God and an heir, heir right now. So don't let anyone rob you of your reward. And all it does for them is it puffs them up. Anything that has its source in man, any religious thing that is not of God will puff a man up and make them proud. Because the Judaizing message will only bring pride and the gospel is designed to take away pride and yet give you all things. It's just an amazing mystery that you can have all things and yet not have pride. I've often, have you ever wondered in Revelation, I might have shared this before, but I'll share it again. Have you ever wondered in Revelation when it says, he who overcomes will sit with me on my throne? You ever wondered about that and just thought, my goodness, to sit on the throne with God. I mean, didn't Satan want to do that? Like, what is up with that? And like, I thought to myself once when I read that, I'm like, how would we not be proud? Like, how would pride not consume us if we sat on the throne? And then I realized it's the miracle of the gospel, that the gospel is sufficient to humble us in such a way that we can sit on the throne with God and give him all the glory and not be proud. And it's only the gospel that can do that. It can give you the full reward and yet you cast it all back to God and give him all the glory. It's just the most amazing miracle in the whole world and otherwise would never work because if you worked for it, then you could glory and you would glory. Don't ever think you wouldn't glory. Some people say, well, yeah, you could glory, but I wouldn't. Not true. You always will glory if you can. So what they're doing is the opposite of what they need to do, which is in verse 19. They're not holding fast the head, which is Christ. Even though they talk about Christ, they don't flatly deny Christ. They are denying Christ. So don't be fooled. You can totally outright deny Christ and not hold the head, even though you give acknowledgement to Jesus. Even though you might say he's your Savior and your Lord. Are you holding the head? as your all in all. Meaning, the head is my life, the head is my sufficiency, the head is my nourishment, the head is my all in all. It's everything that I need here. This is the sufficiency he's saying here in verse 19. All the body of Christ receives its life and everything they need from Christ and Christ alone. And in that way it grows. Meaning there is no Christian growth, there is no church growth the Judaizing way. Legalism does not make a person grow or a church grow. Only grace does. You want to grow in your Christian life? You want to grow in relationship with people? You want to grow in love with people? You want to grow as a community in love? Only grace will do that. And that is holding fast the head. The Christ, Christ is your all in all. But if you think, well, no, we're going to need some legalism, you're going to sever the root that brings life. Here's what... Uh, commentator Peake says on this. He says, this is largely parallel to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Paul proceeds to point out that so far from securing spiritual growth of a higher order, the false teaching by loosening the hold on Christ prevented any growth at all since it obstructed or severed the very channel of spiritual life. So they promised great growth. 
They promised, you know, you will go to level two. And it does the exact opposite. As we know in Galatians, if you follow the Judaizers, you're not going to grow in love. You're going to grow in strife, in envy, and everything else. You want to be more loving? Hold the head. You want to be less loving? Let go of the head and embrace the law. Now the last section here before we close. The wherefore. That was the therefore. So in light of you being forgiven and free of all these things, don't let anybody, therefore, don't let anybody judge you, put you under law. Don't be fooled by ceremonialism. See it for what it is. And hold fast the head. But wherefore, now Paul asks them the question, now why? Verse 20. Therefore speaks of a result. Wherefore is the, the reason. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. So Paul now asks the question, he wants to get to the root of it now. Why are the Judaizers doing this, and why are you entertaining this thought? The Greek doesn't necessarily mean that they are subjecting themselves, but they're subjecting themselves to listening to this stuff. They're subjecting themselves. They're, they're just even allowing themselves to give these guys a hearing. Paul is disappointed with that. We shouldn't even give them a hearing. Paul says, I didn't even suffer them for an hour. What does he say in Galatians? Not even for a minute. Wouldn't give them one foothold. Now, why? Here's the question. Why do you think that people preach law and people love to hear it and go towards it and subject themselves to these things? Why? Before he answers it, he makes one final comment here in verse 22. He says, all these things perish with the using. They're all, why, why do people chase after things that are worthless, that have no value? They perish with the use. There's no eternal value to these things. Why do they think that there is some eternal value to things that there is no eternal value? Food. I mean, you eat it. Jesus himself, actually, they, we, we see an amazing parallel here between Jesus, Jesus' teaching about the traditions of the Pharisees and Paul's. It is exactly parallel. In fact, they both quote the same verse in Isaiah. Do you know that? Isaiah 29, 13. Paul and Jesus allude to it, both. In the same context of the Pharisees nullifying the word of God by their traditions. And Jesus teaches, look, it goes into the body and it goes out. It has no value. It was a shadow. It was teaching you something. That was all. And Paul says the same thing. It just perishes with the using. And it's after the commandments and teachings of men, Isaiah 29, 13. Which verse says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And they, their fear of me is based upon the teachings and the commandments of men. Of course, the Judaizers wouldn't say that their teaching was based upon the commandments of man. They'd say, no, it's based upon the law of God. So the Judaizers are here saying, God says explicitly in the word. But the truth is, they're teaching it after the commandments of man. Isn't that interesting that you can point to something in the Bible, you can quote it verbatim out of the Bible and teach after the commandments of men. Isn't that interesting? And how is that possible? Did not God say not to eat shellfish? Yes. So can you point to it and say, all that eat the swine will be destroyed? Can you do that? You're teaching the commandments and doctrines of men. How so? Because 
you're not teaching that the way that God intended it to be taught. You're not teaching the true end of that thing. The true, the true teaching, the true essence of what that was pointing to, you're not teaching it, you see? And so you're teaching simply man's ideas about God's word. Because the true end of those things is to point to Christ Jesus and his atoning sacrifice and the sufficiency of his atoning sacrifice for you. That's the true end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so any teaching of the law, no matter how explicit, how, much, how many verses you quote, that doesn't bring you into an end of the law for righteousness is after the teachings and the doctrines of men. So why do they do it? And why do people entertain it? And the last verse answers the question, verse 23. They have indeed a show of wisdom. You know, it's very interesting. This word show of wisdom in the Greek is actually word of wisdom. That's what the actual Greek word is. Logos Sophia, the word of wisdom. It has a show, a word, a reputation of. Word travels. A show of wisdom. It seems wise, doesn't it? Because it has to do with will worship. Again, another emphasis. Second time he mentions the will. The point is, I'm willing to do this. I'm the one who's willing. Has will worship. False humility, or what seems like humility, right? Seems like humility to say you're not worthy enough. And the neglecting of the body. Asceticism. Oh, look, I am, this seems wise, right? To neglect your body. I'm, I'm more spiritual. You know, you see on TV the Buddhist monks there in their temples, and you go, ooh, they must be so spiritual, right? Because they're neglecting their bodies. Same thing. Appearance of wisdom. But now this is the essence of it right here at the very end. Paul says, not in any honor to the satisfying the flesh. Complicated verse. Here's what it means, because it's difficult. It's not translated very well, because it is difficult, but... The sense is this, all these practices are not honorable because they indulge man's flesh. That's the sense. All these things appear so wise, right? Appear so holy, appear so pious, appear so humble, and they're worth nothing. They aren't honorable. There's no value there because all they do is the very thing that the gospel is designed to destroy. It just indulges and satisfies a man's flesh. The word flesh is used there. Man's pride, man's ability, man's power, man's accomplishments. It just feeds it, feeds it, feeds it. When the gospel's cutting it, cutting it, cutting it, the gospel says no flesh can glory, no flesh can glory, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. No one will glory but Christ. God forbid that I should glory in anything and he says it right after saying, they want you to be circumcised so they can glory in your flesh. And God forbid that I should glory in anything but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. The Phillips translation, J.B. Phillips, he said this, I know that these regulations look wise with their self-inspired efforts at worship, their policy of self-humbling, and their studied neglect of the body. But in actual practice, they do honor not to God, but to man's own pride. But even better translation is actually comes from the 1587 Geneva Bible, which are things of no value since they pertain to the filling of the flesh. 
So why do men do it? Makes them feel good. Pride. Makes them look good. Makes them be able to judge others. Makes them be able to vaunt over others and say, I'm such a good person. Or glory in themselves. They want that throne. Like Satan. But the ironic thing is that the Christian receives it and yet he receives it not by seeking it. And he gets it without any pride. It's just an amazing thing. So that's the difference. It's all about man's glory versus God's glory. So that's redemption's wherefore and therefore. God has taken away your certificate of debt in Christ Jesus by nailing it to his cross, by paying the full price that you deserve, which was the wrath of God and and death, eternal death. Christ has paid it all for you. Took it out of the way forever so you don't have any more sin. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you and beguile you of your reward. And remember, it's all about God's glory. And it's not about yours. So let's rejoice today and tomorrow and for all eternity in the one who saved us and washed us by his blood. Let's enjoy what God has done for us and all the blessings we have. And let's give him all the glory. Amen? All the glory forever. Thank you, God. Thank you so much, God, our Father, for removing, taking it out of the way, that which was against us, and rightfully so, it was against us. Thank you for freeing us from all of our debts. Thank you for dying that horrible death on the cross for us and making us free. God, help us to experience and understand and know our freedom that we have in you and to be very sensitive to those subtle deceptions that seem so right and so Christian. Keep us from evil, Lord. Cause our our Christian lives, God, to, to be just full of the knowledge of your love and our freedom that we have in you and all the blessings we enjoy because God feel like we've lived so far below it. So God, help us just to see and to live in the heavenlies. And we give you all the glory because your name is wonderful and you are worthy of all the praise. And we acknowledge you and praise you, God, and you only today. In Jesus' name.